0: Hi, I'm Eric, and this is Listen to Sleep. Quiet bedtime stories and meditations to help you fall deeply asleep. Well, this week was one of those weeks for me. I had a few challenges that gave me that gnawing feeling in my gut as I was trying to figure out the best approach to tackling them. Eventually, I found myself just kind of spinning in my mind. So I meditated a bit, and I decided to try the one thing that always works to calm my mind, a walk with Bodhi. As I fell in behind him on the trail, and just let his world be my world, it was much easier to just be in the moment, and enjoy the beauty that was all around us. That walk and the realizations I had on it inspired my choice of this week's story, and I wrote about it a bit on the blog. There's also a video I made on that walk, if you'd like to see what the mountain looks like this time of year through Bodie's eyes. There's a link in the show notes, or you can find it on the website at listentosleep.com. Before we get to this week's story, I'd like to thank everyone who supported the podcast by joining the Patreon this week. Thank you, Hillary, Hannah, Tori, Madeline, Ailead, Maria, and Marjolein. Thank you so much to all of you, and the almost 400 other folks who are supporting the podcast through the Patreon. I appreciate all of your support so much. If the podcast helps you sleep and you'd like to support it, you can join the Patreon for less than a dollar a month. And for your support, you'll get new episodes of the podcast a day earlier without any ads or introductions. Your support puts me one step closer to my goal of 1,000 patrons, and that would allow me to be your full-time storyteller and meditation guide. For the folks who would like an extra story every week, I read longer books serially on Listen to Sleep Plus, and you can also join that through the Patreon. This coming week, we'll be starting Winnie the Pooh, which has just this year come into the public domain. When you join Listen to Sleep Plus, you'll get all the books I've read so far, like Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan and The Children of Odin, a book of Norse tales, which we just finished up. Every week, there's a new chapter from the book we're currently reading. And there's more information about all of this on listentosleep.com, or you can click the link in the show notes Go directly to the Patreon. I'd also like to thank the folks who've rated the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts recently. If you listen on Spotify, did you know that they recently added a way to rate podcasts there? And it's so easy. You just tap the star under the podcast description in the Spotify app and then choose the amount of stars you'd like to rate it. If you listen on Spotify and you think of it, I'd sure appreciate you leaving a rating next time you're there. This week's story is from the best short stories of 1919, and it's a lovely one about remembering the soft beauty at the heart of our sometimes hard world. First, let's take a deep breath. In, and out, letting go of the day, feeling yourself sink deeply down into your mattress with the weight of gravity pulling you down. Let's take another deep breath in. And out. (sighs) Nothing to do. Nowhere to go. This is your time. Quiet time. And one more deep breath in with me. (sighs) And out. If you start to fall asleep while I'm reading to you, that's okay. Just let yourself drift off. A thing of beauty. Simonov told it to me over the coffee cups. It was the twilight hour on Second Avenue and we were enjoying a late afternoon chat. The gates of the human dam, shut all day long, had been opened, and the rushing, swirling stream of men and women beat past us relentlessly, past the door of the Café Cosmos, open to the sights and sounds of the street. Every person in that human torrent seemed eager to reach a haven of rest. Not that their faces looked tired or haggard, but each gave the impression that something had been worn off in a subtle, persistent process, a certain newness, freshness, gloss, call it what you will. Shadows of men and women they were in the twilight as they scurried past. And yet, the rhythm of their footsteps beat upon the ear as steadily as the roar of many waters. The ghosts are having a holiday, said Simonov. His voice was barely audible, in the hum of conversation. Simonov was one of those rare teachers on the Lower East Side who neither taught night school nor practiced law after his daily duties were over. His passion was to understand his fellow man, to help them if possible. Although for a reformer, he was given entirely too much to dreaming. His cafe bills for a year, when added together, made a surprisingly large total. But then, Simonov never bothered with useless mathematics. A hand organ outside was droning the miserere. Children of the tenements, like moths drawn to globes of brilliant light on midsummer nights, hovered about the organ and danced. There was a capricious abandon about their movements, which fascinated Simonov. He had a way of running his slender fingers through his wavy brown hair when he was emotionally stirred. The dancing maidens of Trebizond were not more graceful than these, he sighed, as his eyes followed the sinuous movements of two ragged little tots. They outgrow it after a while. Never, I protested. The Grand Street Halls, I mean the search for beauty, drawled Simonov. This is the dance of the Greek maidens at the sacrificial rites to Demeter. The Grand Street thing is a contortion before the obese complacency of the great god Jazz. And Jazz has no soul. (sighs) Through the ever-gathering darkness, the electric lights began to twinkle like blue-white "'diamonds against purple velvet. "'The lights in the café were, too, "'turned on by a pottering waiter "'whose flat-footed shuffle "'had become familiar to us "'through many years of observation. "'A bedraggled-looking person "'entered the café, "'clutching awkwardly "'a dozen or more cut roses. He passed from table to table and offered them for sale. The price was ridiculously small. It seemed strange to me that Semenov's face should turn so white. His manner suggested great agitation. When the peddler reached him, Semenov purchased the entire stock and gave him in payment, far in excess of the amount asked. The happy vendor directed one searching glance at him, then went out whistling. What will you do with all those roses? I asked. Give them away, he answered to the dirtiest, most woebegone, most forlorn little children I can find. I shall do this in the memory of John Keats. I looked my astonishment. A thing of beauty is a joy forever, Simonov intoned dreamily. But, there's a story connected with it. I suspected it, I said quietly. When a schoolteacher consents to part with a perfectly good dollar for a dozen wilted roses, there must be an esoteric reason. Materialist, he laughed. The dancing and the scurry of pattering feet had both ceased. The sounds of the night were now more soothing, more harmoniously blended. The earliest arrivals of the theater crowd were besieging the sidewalk ticket office of the burlesque show opposite. Simonov launched into his narrative. I was sitting here, one evening, all alone, the day had been particularly trying. I had been visited by my district superintendent, a perfect paragon of stupidity. He had squatted in my classroom until I wished him and his bulk on the other side of the sticks. When it was all over, I came here, glad to shake off the chalk dust and the pompous inconsequence of my official superior. Suddenly, I was startled out of my brooding. You are unhappy, I heard a voice murmur ever so softly. It seemed like the sighing of a night wind through the treetops. I looked up. Before me, stood a young man with deep blue eyes, blonde hair, exquisite daintiness of feature, and unnaturally pale complexion. He was dressed in soft gray tweeds. In the crock of his left elbow, he carried roses. Their fragrance permeated the café, and for once... The odor of stale tobacco was not dominant. You are unhappy, he repeated mildly, as if it were the most natural thing in the world for him to say. I am, I answered frankly. The world is a stupid place to live in. You must not say that he reproached quietly. It is we who are stupid. The world is beautiful. Won't you accept a rose? Like a prince in a fairy story, he bowed grandly and offered me an American beauty, still moist with the mock dews of the florist. But why do you honor me thus? I asked, taking the flower and inhaling its fragrance. He looked a bit put out, as if I were asking the obvious thing. You were sad, of course, and a thing of beauty, is a joy forever, I concluded. He flushed with pleasure. I am so glad you have read my endymion, he exclaimed delightedly. Suppose we walk out together and preach the gospel of beauty to those who, like yourself, forget the eternal in the trivial. I have some powerful sermons here. He caressed his roses as a mother would stroke the head of a child. Along the avenue, we were followed by hordes of little girls with starved eyes. My good Samaritan picked the poorest and the most wistful for his largesse of roses, and to each one, As he handed the flower, he repeated the famous line from the work of the great romantic poet, A thing of beauty is a joy forever. Soon, there were only two left. These my friend was inclined to withhold from the clamoring tots who assailed us. After all, They are young, he said. Their sad moments vanish like the mists. But the sorrows of the years of discretion are not thrown off so easily. They persist like scars long after the original bruise has healed. We entered a hallway to escape our little friends. From a door ajar on the first story, a man's voice floated down to us. It was high pitched and strident, as if a relentless lawyer were arraigning a criminal. My friends, we heard, how long are you going to remain blind to your condition? The interests of capital and labor are diametrically opposed to each other. You are the producers of the world's wealth, and yet you submit to exploitation by the class of parasites who fatten upon your ignorance and your unwillingness to unite. Working men of the world, you have nothing to lose but your chains. Slavinsky, the great agitator, probably rehearsing his speech for the party rally at Cooper Union tomorrow, I explained. Agitator? Questioned the apostle of beauty. He is agitated, indeed, and unhappy. I shall give him a rose. Slavinsky sputtered with amazement when the rose was offered to him. A joy forever, he mocked. It isn't such a joy to work for starvation wages, to be bled by profiteers, to be flayed alive by plutocrats. I tell you, Mr... You are addressing Keats, John Keats. I tell you, Mr. Keats, there ain't no beauty when you're up against it. I tell you, won't you accept this rose? I'll take it, growled Slavinsky with unnecessary fierceness. It ain't nature's fault. She don't go in for profiteering. The agitator's conversational style was more colloquial, though no less vehement than his platform manner. Did you note the omission? Keats inquired when we were again on the avenue. It isn't impoliteness, I replied. Men of his class are too stirred by cosmic problems to say thank you. It is a beautiful thing to say, nevertheless, and the world needs it. I thought the eyes of John Keats, a fitting name for such a fantastic personality, were filling with tears. My companion held his rose before him, as if it were a charm against the sordidness about him. He had a way of peering at the people we passed, as if he were looking for someone he had lost in the crowd. At 16th Street, we turned into the small park at the right of the avenue, which with its neighbor on the left, keeps alive the memory of green and growing things among the dwellers of the tenements. It was at the fountain that he first saw her. John Keats had an abrupt manner, for all his gentleness, of proceeding along the path of his desires. At last... I have found you, he said to the tall girl who was watching a group of youngsters at play near the gushing waters. In the darkness, I could see only a pair of flashing eyes under a broad-brimmed hat and a cape of soft blue hanging gracefully from her shoulders. She scrutinized both of us with the intuitive glance of one who has learned to tread warily amid dangerous surroundings. Apparently, her preliminary examination was satisfactory. She put us into the non-poisonous class. Keats had flattened the palm of his right hand against his breast and was offering the last rose to her, with the other. His manner was of the stage, but not offensively so. At last I have found you, repeated my curious acquaintance. For all your laughter you are unhappy. You are consumed with yearning, even as am I. Pray, accept a rose... With a murmured repetition of his formula, he gave her his last flower. His manner was earnest, and the girl had immediately rejected the assumption that we were mocking her. This is a mistake, she explained, hesitating about the rose. I don't think you know who I am. A lady of high degree, I am sure, responded Keats gallantly. There was a peculiar quaintness about his English, which, like his name, took me back to the early nineteenth century. The coincidence of his name did not strike me as unusual, because the telephone directory is full of such parallels. No high degree about me, laughed the girl. I'm a sales lady at Marmelstein's, that's all. What you said about being unhappy, it's true sometimes. When you came up, I was just thinking. Her voice, with its overtone of sadness, Sounded in the semi-darkness like the faint tremolo of mandolins serenading in the distance. But there's no need for unhappiness, contended Keats. We must shut out from our sight everything but beauty. Pure beauty. At this moment, I am supremely happy. He looked at her. There was an unreality about him for which I could not account. Like a mirage of the park, he seemed. In a twinkle of the incandescence, I thought, he might just vanish. The girl from Marmelsteins looked at him as if, Fascinated. Romance had come and touched her heart with a magic wand. She sniffed at the rose, pensively. I couldn't just tell you why I was feeling queer. Marmolsteen's is a nice place, honest. You see all sorts of people during the day, and it's interesting to work there. But there's something missing. I don't know what. Beauty, my lady. Beauty, declared Keats. Out of the shadows, a fourth form had materialized. A thick-set man who approached us with a firm stride. He patted my friend gently on the shoulder. "'You are a bad boy, John,' he reproached, giving me the slip that way. "'I had the time of my life looking for you. "'The moment my back was turned, you vamoosed from the waiting room. "'That wasn't kind. "'If I hadn't known how fond you was of roses, I would have been stumped. "'Stumped for good.' I trailed you by them roses. The girl sensed that there was something wrong. Lady, farewell, said Keats. With a little moan, she saw him being led off. What's wrong? I asked the intruder. He bugs out on beauty, that's all. Thinks he's a guy named John Keats who wrote poems. A harmless case wouldn't hurt a fly. I was bringing him over to see his mother when he gave me the slip. Gee, but I can breathe easy now. A thing of beauty is a joy forever, declared the spirit of Keats. Sure, sure, said the attendant lighting a cigar. When I turned to leave the park, the girl from Marmelsteins came up to me. What happened? She inquired. Her fists were clenched and she was breathing heavily. I explained. He was such a gentleman, she sobbed. Softly, good night.